Hello everyone, welcome back to Operation History, where history is more than what you remember. I am one of your hosts, David, and today I am not alone. I am joined by our other host, Maria. Hello. Also joining us is Lauren. Hi. And back from the gulags, Derek. Hello. Alrighty. Today on Operation History, we are traveling back to the Western Front. Not just any Western Front, but the Western Front of World War One. Today, Maria is going to lead our discussion on talking about the Christmas truce of 1914. And Maria, on that note, I hand the reins over to you. All right. I'm excited. Are you guys excited? I'm so excited. All right. So just before we jump into the Christmas shoes, I am going to give the folks out there some background information on World War One, just because I feel like sometimes World War One is the forgotten war because in schools, uh, in like K through 12 here in America, I feel like World War Two gets a lot more attention. And unless you take a college class that revolves around it, you probably don't know what's going on. So, okay. Sure. What was that? Is that true? Yes. Okay. So just a little bit of background information. Some background information. World War I took place from 1914 to 1918. The Christmas truce happened in December of 1914. So once we jump into our main event, that's where we're going to be. The war started as a result of the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The war technically started on July 28, 1914. Also, just a side note when it comes to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, he was assassinated by a Serbian terrorist organization. The Their Serbian terrorist organization was called the Black Hand. They assassinated him. They were a group of rebels, and at the time, uh, Serbia was trying to get its independence. So these rebels thought that the way to achieve this was by assassinating him and his wife. Uh, unfortunately, it started a world war instead. The war was started with the Allies and the Central Powers. The Central Powers were Germany, the Ottoman Empire, Bulgaria, Italy, but Italy, when you look under the war participants. Italy is mentioned under the Allies, and that is because by the time the war ended, Italy had switched sides because the Central Powers were losing and the Allies were winning. We're like that. We just we want to be on the winning team. They saw the writing on the wall and jump ship. It's they did it twice. But anyway, that's that's, that's true. That's a different story for a different day. <laughs> um, and then the last uh, participant in the Central Powers was Austria Hungary. The Allies were the British Empire, France, Russia, Japan, Romania, and eventually the United States. So when the war started, one of the big selling points that both sides told their troops was that the war would be over by Christmas and that this was the war to end all wars. So both sides were like, hey, guess what? We're going to go to war, and this will be quick. In and out, we'll be done. You guys will be home by Christmas. Easy peasy. And people, both public and in the military, believed this. So when Christmas and December of 1914 came around, 
the fact that the war was really just getting started was kind of a big shock. They really did think they would be home by this time. So Russia, France, and England had a pact where if one country declared war, then all three countries went to war as its allies. And Austria-Hungary was the first to declare war against Russia. They they kind of started it because Arch, uh, Franz Ferdinand was the Duke of Austria-Hungary. So once they declared Russia against war, the domino effect happened. And Austria-Hungary only declared war when Germany agreed to be its ally. So from there, the dominoes kind of all fell into place. So the majority of our story is going to take place on the Western Front. So just a little bit of background on the Western Front. The Western Front was a line of trenches that were 35,000 miles long. Some 12,000 of those miles were occupied by allies, while the rest were occupied by the Central Powers. So Germany was fighting a two-front war. The other front, the Eastern Front, ran along the Russian and the German border. And the Western Front, as we said, ran along the French and German, uh, excuse me, the French and Belgium border. Too many countries. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the trenches on the Western Front were the site of conflict for the next three years. Both sides made very little advancement over the next three years. The way the trenches were set up, there were three lines of trenches and no man's land was about 50 yards or so wide separating the three trenches on either side and pretty much for the next three years small victories here and there some some sides would gain more ground some sides would lose more ground it was kind of like a tug of war until there was eventually one big push but for now we just want to focus on 1914. uh to understand the misery and what makes the christmas truce so special trench life was terrible there were lice, mice, rats, bugs. There was a report. So I had done, I did a research project on trench warfare for one class. And my specific topic was diseases and trench life. One of the things that I found out and I read, I'll never forget it. It was a piece of a diary clip and this soldier talked about the fact that his friend had lice so bad that he took his shirt off and the shirt started crawling and moving just because that's how much bugs and lice were in this soldier's shirt so just to kind of just the only reason i bring that up is because we can create mental pictures with our mind but for me that that is a mental picture all of in itself Food had to be hung up and supplies had to be stored up high because rats were everywhere. Trenches were collapsing because they were made out of sandbags, dirt, sand, mud. Um, the winter of 1914 was particularly cold and wet with a lot of snow and a lot of rain. So sometimes trenches had to be reconstructed and rebuilt on a daily basis. They were always filled with water because there was no drainage system, which led to trench foot for the soldiers, which trench foot is a really nasty thing. You can you can look that up on your own time. But that that is what's going on for these soldiers. They're tired, they're cold, they're miserable. 
they can't even stand up straight because if they stood up too high and they stood up over the trenches, they would get shot by the other side. They thought they would be home at this point. So life is pretty dismal. So for a little while, the Christmas truce was debated that it even happened, but we know from diaries, memoirs, and letters and notes that were sent home that the Christmas truce did happen. It took place Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1914. Earlier that year, the Pope on December 7th of 1914, Pope Benedict, he pleaded with the powers of Europe to hold a Christmas truce. And he is quoted saying that the guns may fall silent, at least upon the night the angels sang, to allow for negotiations for an honorable peace. Officially, he was ignored. Higher ups had no intention of holding a Christmas truce. So all of the truces that did happen along the Western Front were unofficial. To help add to the Christmas cheer, gifts were sent to the front lines by both uh, the British royal family and the Kaiser. So the British royal family sent Christmas cards to the soldiers. Princess Mary sent out over 250,000 brass boxes, which were filled with cigarettes, supplies, pencils and paper, spices and sweets. And uh, the British monarchy had even include, uh, I'm sorry, had encouraged families to send their soldiers packages, your neighbors, your friends, send your soldier a gift. Um, and the British forces also, I'm sorry, the British royal family also sent these to all of the allies. So like Russia, the Indian army, the Kaiser sent Christmas trees and pipes to his troops. So, as we said, the Christmas truce was technically unofficial. Some higher ups, con uh, some higher ups, continued to order their uh, soldiers to keep firing and even bombard the other side with heavy artillery, just because. The first side that started the Christmas truce was the Germans. They decided to line their trenches with their Christmas trees and they stuck candles in the Christmas trees for lights. The British were very suspicious of this and the British soldiers thought that it was a rouse and that they were preparing for a sneak attack. But eventually the Germans in their trenches started partying and they started singing. And if anybody had instruments, there was reports of music that was heard. So... Eventually, a carol-off started where the Germans would sing songs and then the British would try to drown them out and sing either a cheeky song or another Christmas carol. And eventually, both sides um, came together in a chorus of Silent Night. And that is pretty much Christmas Eve. Christmas Day, it gets a little more interesting. On Christmas Day, both sides, particularly higher up officers went out into no man's land, which was neutral territory. And they started waving white flags to each other. So officers met in the middle, they shook hands and they encouraged other soldiers to come into the field. Once other soldiers came into the field, they started playing games. They exchanged presents, food, supplies, 
They took time to bury their dead in mutual mass graves as a sign of respect and camaraderie. They partied, basically. They played soccer. They sat around and talked, campfires. When the day was over, they shook hands. Each side fired a single shot in the air to signify that the truce was over. And it was, it was back to war, or one would think. In some areas, some soldiers got over the camaraderie really quickly. And Yeah. By the end of the war, over 16 million people had died, and they estimate that injuries accounted up for 20 million, with Russia being the country that suffered the most casualties and the next country or the next participant to suffer the most injuries was the British Empire. So very dismal, but this is kind of like the shining moment of the First World War. Um, yeah, no, that was, that was really good. Uh, I just have a couple things to say. Um, talking about gifts, um, the thing is, that was actually a huge problem for those troops going there, because at one point, the families would send almost too much, because, you know, living in a trench, it's kind of cramped already. Then you have a bunch of packages being sent to every single soldier. There's just not enough room. And I, I mean... There would be like okay. containers of like thousands of cigarettes that they would get. You don't have room to just store a thousand cigarettes anywhere on you. So there would be trenches filled up with boxes that, you know, you need to try to stay low so you don't get hit by sniper fire. It was actually a huge impediment to some soldiers. And thus they were actually kind of upset with the, uh, the amount of boxes that they got. I remembered it when you just said it. I did read that. That's insane to think about because you're right. Those trenches, they were, they weren't straight lines. They were zigzagging lines. They weren't that wide. So you're already cramped to begin with. Now picture somebody sending you a thousand cigarettes, but it sound it was like they obviously more than one soldier got a thousand cigarettes, and I think that was one of the things that they started trading once they got into no man's land and it was simply because like you said there was just too many too many packages yeah i mean they had an abundance of that so you know the whole rule of supply and demand they had it the germans wanted it they'll trade for german chocolate or uh cognac or whatever they can get um another thing um to break the whole little stalemate at the end of the christmas truce um, one of the tactics that the British actually used uh, was when they brought in snipers, actually. So even though their men, their regular men weren't firing, they would have snipers go and pick off any of the Germans that had popped their heads up um, to kind of anger the German side again to start firing, to anger their side again to start firing. It was like pretty messed up, but it worked. Huh. Yeah, that is. That's such up. a British move. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> Uh, and speaking of the British, yeah, they're the reason why there was no uh, 1915 truce. Uh, it was it was kind of a whole repeat of what happened in 1914. Um, there was the whole startup of Germans trying to uh, start singing some Christmas carols um, until the British conducted a 24-hour shelling uh, to drown out the Germans, uh, nearly across the line. Um, and on top of that, if any British officer and or enlisted 
had tried to establish a truce, they were then court-martialed. All right. Um, this was mostly because, you know, by the time in 1915, people were kind of already through with the war. Uh, 1914 was, like, really early on in the war. They, they, they kind of... The British hadn't seen the, like, the craziness that would happen by the end of the Great War. By 1915, uh, the Germans were bombing London with Zeppelins. So they kind of got a little bit of, hey, yeah, you know, before you were just bombing, you know, the middle of France and Belgium, which we don't really care about. But now you're bombing London. Maybe we won't actually let you have a truce and, you know, be cordial with you. Well, also, too, the modern advancements of... Because the Great War is also, like, deemed the first modern war. So mm -hmm. all of these soldiers are returning home with PTSD. They're all mutilated and messed up from shrapnel and whatever else has attacked them. The, so, the, uh, oh, yep. oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, the other big thing that uh, caused them to kind of lose a little bit of um, humanity and, like caring for the Germans was uh, the usage of chlorine gas. I didn't um, know if this was now yeah. or later because I was going to bring yeah, up Yeah, that was in the like, start of 1915. Uh, for some yeah. reason I didn't know if it was 15 or 16 but yeah, once once they started getting gassed on top of all that, mm -hmm. public morale just went way down and everybody wanted to like you said, they were done with it. Everybody either wanted to go home or get it over with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they were not really as friendly as the, to the Germans. After, you know, the usage of chlorine gas started happening, they, they were kind of, they, they were very understandably done with, you know, this whole war and they just wanted it over at any cost. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what happens when you have pol politicians up, you know, up in their high horses and their ivory towers who aren't there in, in the trenches or in the field. And they're like, ah, th and this should work based off how much money we have. And then, because that's what the, that's, that was the first reason why the British, Fran uh, French, and German government said this would be done by Christmas is because not because of manpower, because of money. They, they only had enough money to go to war until December. After that, they were borrowing money. Mm. Oh. Well, also, don't don't sleep on the, uh, the the high generals of both of the sides, thinking that they could outmaneuver one another very easily, and this would be such a quick-paced war rather than an entrenched one. Uh, they were thinking that they were still going to be in the era of Napoleon, where you know you you can march upon Europe and get through the majority of Europe in under a year. Which, you know, obviously, if you weren't doing trench warfare, maybe that's possible. You know, the Germans would uh, kind of revitalize that for round two. But, um, you know, with I... Blitzkrieg. But, I mean, with this, this, they just never understood that they would be locked in a stalemate like this that just came up out of nowhere. I think the thought process more was along the lines of the Franco-Prussian War than Napoleon. Mm. Because Franco-Prussian War, the Germans had had that mobility because of the infrastructure that Otto von Bismarck set up, um, and they were able to get to France as quickly as they did, and that's why that war was very short, mm -hmm. um, and that's why the Germans thought they could do it again. But the French also learned from their mistakes in the past, and that's why trench warfare became 
as Jews as possible because the French started doing it and then the Germans were like, well, we have to do this too because we have to be prepared for anything that comes across. And that's when that trench warfare started. It wouldn't be until 1917 when the U.S. enters the war and the U.S. doesn't do trenches but charges across no man's land that the tide turns. I mean, and the U.S. learned from its mistakes very quickly and very bloodily. Um, but um, that's when that tide turns and that's when that trench mentality finally breaks. Also, it's the tank. The tank helps break that too. Um, that mentality. Hmm. Well. Uh, I, I also think the uh, the reinvention and uh, the reusage of the air power was a huge point in that. Mm. Um, you mean, and, and everywhere since even like Napoleonic era, they had used things with the air, but mostly hot air balloons for reconnaissance. But now that you have planes that can, you know, you can hold a bomb out the, the side and drop it on an enemy trench, or, you know, you can use flashes uh, that are just little tiny spikes and drop it in the middle of a trench and wipe out an entire trench with a plane rather than actually having to have people charge over. By the end of the war, when they had that technology, it was much easier to use something like that than send your, you know, entire unit over the top of a trench into no man's land, which was pretty much just, you know, sacrificial war. Um, but yeah, again, no, no one was getting across that. Yeah, but, no. but again, this was this was right at the start when they really didn't understand that this was going to be such a long war, such a bloody war where there would be, you know, hundreds of thousands of casualties in every battle. Even it was just a momentous thing that they were not prepared for. Well, like you said, it's, it was so early. They were still naive and it, the war hadn't escalated to what it would escalate to. So like, like you said, the bloodiness factor and the resentment, wasn't there yet so it, it it's it's a how do i how do i put it? it's a it's a product of its naivety yeah it's a word <laughs> it definitely is it is now yeah plus i think a lot of what it also had to do because in my research one of the things i found was um the younger soldiers were more apt to participate in the fun and that's something too when you're talking about the great war especially amongst the british soldiers the i believe the enlistment age was 18 but boys wanted to go fight so badly that they were lying on their um paperwork some of them were recorded to actually be as young as like 15 i think some were even 14 so i mean you got 14 year old kids when the opportunity presents itself to kind of have fun and let loose especially in that environment i think between them and the goodwill that the upper officers wanted to uh get going between the two of them i think they really got the party started yeah i mean they were People say this all the time, but they were kids. I, they were like, yeah, I'm going to go and be home by Christmas. Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm dying of French foot in the middle of East Bum. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go party with the Germans. France. Yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah. And and the rats, and, and rats would be, I mean, when you're talking about trench life, rats and light... Ru- Lice? 
Thank you. Thank you. I can't. I don't know. It was gross. It was gross. It was terrible. One of the. I mean, look up any book. The pictures. They actually had to start bringing this. This didn't happen till like later in the war or like midway through. But they actually had to start bringing in dogs to clean up the rat situation in the trenches because it was and, that bad. Uh, and there's you can look at pictures. There's piles of rats that these dogs are standing on top of. Yes, rats were actually super super bad during this time because the thing is the rats had kind of developed a taste you um, sorry what i just Goog- i will put this on our twitter <laughs> oh my god uh, uh, I my world war 1 and this bitch has <laughs> red rats hanging from his motherfucking yeah. uniform. Yeah. Excuse my friend. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. They were the Let's... size of people. <laughs> so oh, yeah. the thing is uh the the rats would actually get a taste for human flesh because they would go into the middle of no man's land and find all of these corpses that would just be laying out there fresh and ready to chow down on so they would start you know roving in packs just eating the deceased the thing was once they were done with the deceased well on either side they know that there's a nice hefty supply so yeah if you slept in like you know an uh, area where no one else was and everything was kind of quiet yeah you might wake up to a bite on your leg as a rat is trying to chew off your own leg while you're still alive so you know kind of a terrible way to be living with rats trying to eat you i mean if we're gonna diverge a set for a second from the rats you brought up dead bodies um i know when i was doing my research report they were burying them in no man's land. They were burying them outside the trenches. They were even burying them in the walls of the trenches. And when it would rain and the trenches mm-hmm. would decompose, these rotting corpses would resurface. So not only do not only are these rats eating these rotten corpses, but that smell. And think about everything that comes with a rotting corpse that those are they were resurfacing constantly every time it rained every time there was a mud mudslides were extremely common because the 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 dirt just kept getting repacked and reused yeah the thing is also with um artillery barrages mm-hmm. even if you did bury them significantly good <laughs> you know an artillery shell hitting that spot of ground it is going to blast everything up 30 feet in the air meaning yeah so frequently they're like their mass graves that they had dug for like any soldiers would just get blown to bits having people just seeing arms and legs just littered the battlefield after they had already buried those people which yeah you wonder why this is the first war that people really start talking about shell shock and, you know, PTSD. Because mm-hmm. it's it's unlike any other war up until that point, because it's just you're staying in one spot. You're just seeing the same sight for day after day. You're seeing the same people that you buried three times keep resurfacing in more of a state of decay and you're just hearing a constant bombardment of artillery shells over you. It is just quite literally hell. Like well, that, and the no. fear of the gas too. You know, getting mm-hmm. gas in the middle of the night because that's that would 
that often happened was middle of the night. Um, the trenches are mostly quiet. Most people are asleep, and that's when um, mustard gas would get thrown into these trenches. So that's the that was the other worry is is it actually along with these soldiers? Is a lot of them would be like, am I actually going to go to bed tonight, or am I going to get gassed tonight? So the the that image is so gross. They didn't even skin the rats before he made it into a coat. It's just dead rats I'll hanging from him. I'll yeah. let you read my paper, Warren. You want to talk about gross. No. That was like that was the I only thing I didn't eat for like a whole semester because everything <laughs> I found was just grosser than the next thing I had read. And my, my paper didn't start off being that gross. I was actually originally interested in trench construction and how trench construction differed on both sides, but there wasn't Grass enough. Grass structural. <laughs> there wasn't enough to write the paper that I had to write on it. So in my research process, I kept coming across like various diseases and that was like a can of worms. So I jumped into that. Uh, but yeah, the that semester, it was one disgusting fact after another. I feel like you made me read that for no, you were very nice. You were like, Do you want to like check my paper? And I was an idiot. And I said yes. And then I was like, I'm gonna go to therapy now. See you later. I'm gonna oh, go yeah. back to Plymouth Rock where I belong. The picture the pictures were what killed it. If you think the pictures of the rats were bad, you didn't see the pictures hey. of the feet. Yeah, I mean, hey. you gotta think about it. They they're living out in a cold trench that is hmm. constantly flooding. And, and frozen and they, unfrozen. They barely have like they have winter clothes, but it's not like they're they're not getting like nice warm mittens and like hand wo woven hats. Well, like, even if they were, they were getting yeah. wet, and that was the problem. Yeah. Was because there was no drainage in the flood. I mean, in the flood in the trench, the trenches would flood, and you're standing in water for hours. The water you're literally just standing in shit. Yeah, they, yep. you're standing in shit because, you know, there is probably some kind of, there's food bits, there's mm -hmm. rats, there's disease, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. gun shell casings, whatever is floating in that water that you've been standing in because that water is picking up everything that's happening in that trench. So now you're standing in it for hours, days, and it's seeping into your boots, your socks. And that was the problem. They weren't changing and drying their boots and socks. So until they figure, and they didn't like figure this out until like 1915, maybe even a little more towards 1916. So all these soldiers that were plagued with trench foot and some of them had to lose their feet to amputation. Some of them, their feet were so badly mutilated because their feet started decaying. Like, because they would take off the boot and the whole foot would fall off. Yeah, yep. Some of them, um, their feet would swell and then they would swell inside their boots and they didn't want to say anything because they would get in trouble. Um, so now they're walking around, their boots are too small, they're doing drills, they're working, they're fighting, if they have to do trench construction, it do that with inflamed feet in like shoes that have now become two sizes too small. So, uh, the, I mean, yeah. PT is bad enough. Put me on the Mayflower, yeah. please. I miss my home. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so once they figured out like, hey, 
if we have them take care of their feet and put dry socks on and dry boots on, this doesn't happen or it doesn't happen to the extent that it was happening. They figured that out and they were able to remedy that, but it never really went away. It just was not as prevalent because I think the statistic early on in the war was like one in every two soldiers or like one in every three soldiers would suffer a trench foot. Jeez. Yeah, so it was bad. It was bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, everyone knows my opinion about it. I mean, we, we somehow got on wow. to rat. We we got, we went we left Christmas and we got on to rats, light lice, and mice. But but that and again, it's important to talk about the PTSD. It's in talking. It's important to talk about it the is. disgustingness because that is what also helps make. The Christmas truth so unique is that in the midst of this misery, there's this unofficial truce. It's unsanctioned. And Dave Dave said a quote at the beginning of last episode that I adopted all throughout last episode, and I'm going to adopt it through this episode. It's humanity at its worst and its best. Okay. Good job, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I, I occasionally come up with some good, uh, some good quotes come to the brain. Hey, um, even a, <laughs> even a broken clock is right twice a day. Damn oh, straight, man. Skippy. That's right. Listen, um, I'm good for one too every now and then. <laughs> no, but no, I mean, hmm. when we talk about the Christmas truths, that's what makes it more mythical. I mean, we we know it's true, but now I I can see why people thought it was a myth at first is because. You're telling me that one day, one year, that all this blood, gore, and this horror stopped in at least one spot of the French. I mean, we talked about the French and Germans and Belgians, they didn't do any of this. Um, but for one moment, there was there was quiet on the front. It was all quiet on the Western Front for once. It was... um. It was it was a bit interesting because like there was a, such a mixing of people because this was the Great War you know World War One, um, the British Empire uh, had some troops from their uh, Indian colony there, um, which you know you you have the Germans on one side setting up you know their Tannenbaum and singing Christmas carols. And, of course, these Indian troops don't really understand this. They're just like, okay, well, you know, we understand that that is, that's Christmas, but, I mean, like, what, what does it matter to us? We don't celebrate that. But, you know, the lights and everything, they, they, that kind of drew them back to uh, Diwali, the, the, the uh, Hindu festival, um, and, and Sikh as well, um, festival uh, that they would celebrate. So then they were a little bit hesitant, like, more than, you know, the British to come out. Because the British were just like, oh yeah, they're Christians too. They like, you know, you know, big old trees and, you know, Jesus. Let's go out there. But then, you know, the, the Indians were a little bit more hesitant, but they eventually did do the same uh, and go out. Um, and it was just kind of like a really unifying moment rather than like, you know, that could have been like a big separation where like, oh yeah, we're Sikh. We don't actually celebrate Jesus. Yeah. You know, you guys have your little celebration over there. We're going to have our little Diwali over here. You know, let's separate it. But no, they, it, they came together. It could have been a big, it could have been a big separation, but it could have also been a big disaster mm. when you start. And, and you're right. Um, when I was doing my research, that was another thing I found. And I think um, in my initial 
talk, I mentioned campfires. I, I should elaborate on that a little more. Um, when you're right, um, because of the mix of cultures, there were some cultures and some people from certain cultures who were hesitant to take part in the activities because they didn't understand what was going on. And the Indian colonial forces were the ones that were particularly mentioned. And it was that camaraderie and that kind of like laid backness that suddenly came over everything. Like, especially when they started, you know, playing soccer and exchanging gifts, they would set up these campfires. um, I'm sorry, football. (laughs) Um, They set up these campfires all throughout no man's land and everybody was just kind of chilling, sitting around talking. And, you know, because this is a different time, people back then, especially, Uh, If you were from England or Germany, even France, they knew more than one language. So someone probably knew how to communicate with someone. And that's kind of from what I understand from my research, that's what was going on, was that there was a lot of interpretation going on, a lot of laughter and people just kind of basic communication. But it, it was that camaraderie through that basic communication that everybody kind of left with. I mean, honestly... Soldiers are soldiers, no matter what country they're fighting for. They're always the jokesters. They're always the same silly dudes, no matter what what nation's flag they have. Um, it's been shown in a lot of different things where, like, different nations' soldiers are, like, participating in, like, training ops, and they can't speak any of the other nation's language, but they're still doing the same dumb things together because, you know, it's the same type of people. You know, you realize that everyone really is, like, similar when you break down the barriers of, hey, I'm wearing a different uniform. Well, yeah, so I'm still the same type of person that you are. We both are drafted into this war, and we're both sitting here dying for a country that really didn't, uh, you know, want us to really uh, like be doing our best because they didn't care about peace talks, you know. And that and that was one of the things. Once the Christmas truce was over, that was one of the things that stopped uh, like war progress from going forward. Was you you hit the nail right on the head. You know that camaraderie lended itself to that idea of this person's just like me. They may speak a different language. They may be wearing a different uniform. They may be fighting under a different flag, but they're still just like me. I don't want to kill them, especially after everything we did yesterday. I don't want to kill them. They don't want to kill me. And um, especially like higher ups, generals, and commanders, that this was a real problem. And like I said, it, it came to the point where. After the new year, they kind of had to cycle some troops, newer troops through. They had to move some soldiers around because there was this real hesitant to pick up and pick up where they left off. So that's basically it. So I I know our conversation took some interesting turns, but basically what you have to remember about the Christmas truce of 1914 is what makes it mythical, what makes it special is... kind of already been said but through all of this nastiness this uh you know this this, you're at war war is chaos war is nastiness everything stopped and these men came together for the sake of goodness and camaraderie and they put every difference that they had aside and just were human for one night and then it kind of went back to a war which even adds to the mythicalness of it even more So does 
Anybody have anything that they want to say or add or ask? Uh, I just wanted to give a nice big shout out to our uh, our adoring fans. Uh, we we've had a huge uptick recently as far as listeners and uh, downloads. So I just want to say thank you all for uh, listening. Um, it really uh, gives a nice little smile to all of our faces when we see people actually listening to the content. Um, once again, at the end of the episode, we're going to, you know, plug all of our different social medias and different places you can reach out. And please, please reach out. If you have any uh, comments or, you know, ways you think we can improve, please let us know. Yeah, please um, hang out. Yeah, please. Um, I usually, me, Lauren, usually does the Twitter and people actually have started like talking back, which is so much fun. Talk to me. I'm on Twitter all day because I don't have anything else going on, so come hang out with me. Send us an email. Let us know what you think of the show. Is there anything we can improve upon? Is there anything that we're doing that you like? Say hi. Just come say hi. Make sure if you guys really like the show to go ahead and follow us on Spotify. Give us a five-star review on uh, <laughs> iTunes. Give us a review on iTunes. Let us know how we're doing in the comments. Share with all your friends and family, because who doesn't want a little history in their day? Well, And we well, also... Oh, I was going to say, we also have an Audrey account now at, like, podcast things. So if you guys have a podcast, too. Uh, just wishing everyone out there a happy holidays and whatever you celebrate. Um, and just from this uh, nice little story of ours, just take away the moral of try not to get trench foot over the holidays. I, I think that's the thing we can all take away from this. <laughs> and avoid rats. Avoid, and avoid rats. 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 Lice. And no lice. lice. Oh, Social distancing. <laughs> the only creepy, the only creepy crawly in your house should be your cat, dog, or other normal pet. Or if you have a pet rat, that's fine, but... Eh. Yeah, pet, pet rat is okay. <laughs> Any rat other okay. rat, call an exterminator. Or get a cat. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to this month's episode of Operation History. We appreciate all the love and support we get from our listeners. If you'd like to catch up with us, you can reach us on our Facebook page, operationhistory.facebook.com. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. okay. Facebook, Operation right. History. Find us. Find us on Facebook at Operation History. We also have a Twitter where you can interact with us. It is Operation Hist. That's Operation H-I-S-T. And we also have an email address where you can have any questions um, that you want answered. answered. Uh, suggest your own topic or just say hi. Um, you know, uh, complaints, praises, all of the above. You can email us at operationhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to hear more of Maria's lovely voice, she and our friend Kelly have a podcast that's also part of our Down the Hall podcast network, where they talk about their favorite pop culture fandoms. You can catch them over at It's a Fans World, which can be found on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For December, they are talking about the Disney's 2009 version of A Christmas Carol. It, yes, it is as creepy as you remember it. Oh, wait, we're going to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun. I'm excited. For our next month's episode, Dave is going to be taking us back to New England for a look at some environmental history and 1996 oil spill in Rhode Island. 
here at Operation History, we want to wish you happy holidays and a happy new year. Wherever, whatever, and however you are celebrating, we want you to have a joyous and safe holiday and a very happy new year. Stay safe out there, guys. And this is Operation History signing off. has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for Operation History. Three, two, hello everyone, welcome back to Operation History, where is more than what, hold on, uh, back up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, it's just, okay, alright, yeah. try it, try it again, hold on, hold on, stop, stop laughing, no, can't do it, hold uh, on, no, no. alright, 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 hold on, hold on. Uh, yeah, let me just, uh. Excellent. I'm excited. Are you guys excited? Woohoo! Um, yeah. What's up? Jennifer, love of my life, just sex me. How did the podcasting go? <laughs> <laughs> like we're done yet? <laughs> <laughs> we're still on the intro thing, babe. This is literally a dumpster fire, and I am for it. What? Oh. Fuck. What? Son of a bitch. What is happening? He left and then he came. came... Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Why? Um... I think maybe it's just taking a minute just to go through all of the, com- the commands. So he's like, what the fuck well, do you should want? We, should we even start yet? Because you did say leave on. again. <laughs> Uh-oh. They yell at me that he's not recording this channel. But okay. I'm not recording the channel. I'm not here. <laughs> Even though he's literally you? sitting right but there. Yeah. What if we all left and came back? Okay. Come on, leave. God, he's still here. He is still here. <laughs> Bro, I'm telling you, there's something cursed about today. There was just something cursed about today. Even Craig knows it. I mean, today was a good day when it started off. Literally, we've been plagued with mic problems, connection problems, and now Craig. Back in. Oh! Okay, he's back. Back. I'm just gonna get this on on camera.
<laughs> that was a really good one. That was a good one. It's good. Anyway, this is why I'm not a military historian or a 20th century <laughs> historian. Sure, Jamestown ate people, but like, who didn't? Who didn't? <laughs> uh, I can say the majority of people didn't eat people. You know? No. That, that, yeah. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> Listen, Jamestown. Whatever. Like I. Uh, yeah, you know, Jamestown is definitely not problematic their, at all. They didn't wear. They I don't know. 